to uh, what I would call maybe week two, maybe kind of a, an awkward introduction to this series, but the first one, so I'm going to call this one week two of our series uh, called Hashtag Not My Church. Now last week we dove into the series looking at the seven churches that Jesus wrote a letter to and said to them something that was going on that they were not his church. They were not doing the things that he started the church to be doing. And we've been looking at that and contrasting that with what a great church should do. And so last week, as we looked at the first letter in the church at Ephesus, what we saw was is that a great church should be focused on the great commandment, right? A great church should be focused on the great commandment. And the great commandment is simply this, love God and love others. And so last week we talked all about that and we walked away from that letter with this idea. We said that we desire to be a church that cares about our friends, friends. We desire to be a church that cares about our friends, friends. Now today, today we're going to press on with the, the second thing. The second thing that I think makes a great church. The second thing that is being written. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation's the last book in your Bible, so you can flip all the way to the back, or if you're on the app, just scroll all the way down. Just keep on going so you can't scroll any further. And so open that up. Verse 8 is where we're going to start. Now while you're doing that, I'll give you just a little background on um, the church that we're going to read about today. Now, um, the church that we're going to read about today is the church at Smyrna. Now my wife said you got to kind of say it like this, Smyrna. Right? She's like, I don't know how else you're supposed to say it. She's like, you just go Smyrna and you'll get it right every time. So if you're struggling on how to say the name Smyrna, just and you got it. All right? You're just fine. So the church at Smyrna. Now, last week we talked about that each of these churches were real churches. Right? They were in real locations with real people with real problems. And somebody asked me afterwards, they said, hey, it was great that you talked about they were real churches, but where are they really located at? I was like, that's a really good question. So for all of you that want to know that, I'm going to put up on the map where it is because these churches are located in modern-day Turkey, right? Archaeologists know where three of them, they dug up the remains, it could take you to straight to where the first century church was in three of these locations. Two of the churches still exist. In fact, the one that we're talking about today, the church at Smyrna, is one of the two churches that has existed for the last 2,000 years. We just celebrated our first birthday. Maybe, maybe we can make it to 2,000 years, all right? I don't know about you, but I don't plan to be here 2,000 years from now, right? Maybe some of you do, but how incredible is that? This church has been there for 2,000 years. Hey, the other two churches, archaeologists can get pretty close to the location of where they think that they met at. They, don't, they haven't found exact remains for them just yet, but they have a good idea about where those churches would have been at. Now, Smyrna um, is located 50 miles to the north of the church we talked about last week in Ephesus, right? Not that far away, just a couple days journey. Um, and so, and it was a, it was the second largest city. It was a beautiful port city, right? And in fact, much like Phoenix, it had mountains that surrounded the entire city. But unlike Phoenix, it sits on the Aegean Sea, right? And so it has these beautiful mountains and this beautiful sea that you get to see. In fact, as sailors would come into port, 
they would say this has got to be the crowning jewel because these mountains look like a crown around the entire city. Beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. Look at that, isn't that pretty? I wanna go visit that. By the way, the town today is not called Smyrna, it's called Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, and absolutely beautiful to look at. Now, this city though, this city has not always existed. In fact, in 600 BC, an Asiatic king came in and he totally wiped out the entire city. And for about 300 years, the city ceased to exist. It was dead, there wasn't anybody there. And Alexander the Great came through this region and he conquered it. And while he was there, he had a dream. And in the dream, he, was, he, he dreamed about resurrecting this beautiful city. And so when he woke up from the dream, he did. He began to build the city and he built this fortress on a hillside. In fact, this fortress has been called the Crown Fortress. And it might be one of the reasons why this city is associated with crowns. Might be the, the mountains that were around that sailors used to say it was crowning. In fact, this city was called Alexander the Great's crowning achievement. But it also may have been given this idea of being a crown city because this is where crown worship was a big deal. You see, over and over again, as the new Caesars would come, this city would worship the crown and worship Caesar. And so, whatever the reason, we know that this city identified a lot with crowns. In fact, they identified so much with crowns that on both sides of their coinage, there was a crown. There was a picture of somebody wearing a crown, and on the other side was the laurel wreaths that make a crown. Now this city, the name of the city, Smyrna, it's an interesting name. You might go, where does that come from? It actually comes from a, a plant that they would grow and a perfume that would come from it. You've probably heard of this before called myrrh, right? Smyrna means or is associated with myrrh. Now myrrh is a really, really expensive perfume. And it came from a flower that grew in this region. And here's what they would do. They'd take and pick the flower and they would dry it out. And then from that, they would take their pestle and mortar and they would ground it into a really fine powder. And then they would take that powder and they would mix it with some ethanol, which is a really, really strong alcohol. In fact, one source I read said it was like vodka. And I was like, oh, that's good. So they mixed this flour with like this ethanol and they put it all together and they let it sit and ferment for at least six weeks. At the end of six weeks, they would take it out and they would pour it through a strainer. And they ended up with two very different substances, both of which were considered myrrh. One was a perfume that you could spray onto something, and the other was like a mud type of a spice that you could rub onto something. Both of them incredibly fragrant. In fact, most people, most people would save their entire lives to be able to afford some of this perfume, whether it was in the mud form or the spray form. Jesus, Jesus was given myrrh three times. First time most of you probably know about. As the wise men came in, they brought three different gifts. 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The second time, the second time was the woman who had an alabaster box of very expensive perfumes. And she came and she broke it over his feet to anoint him. And the third time is when Jesus' body was being prepared for death. You see, myrrh was most commonly used when somebody had died. It was applied to the body to try to take away. It was such a strong smell that it could cover the smell of a decaying body. And so as the women prepared his body, they put myrrh on it. You know, it's, it's interesting. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, it talks about the second coming of, of the king, which we know is Jesus. And it tells us that all of the kings came and they brought gifts to him. And they brought to him gold and frankincense. And you're thinking, oh, I know what else they probably brought. But you know what they didn't bring in that passage? Myrrh. Which is incredibly interesting because myrrh is only and was primarily used for death. And when Jesus comes back again, he's not ever going to die. Now, with all of that background, I want to read this letter to you. And allow some of those things to seep into what you hear Jesus saying. Starting in verse 8. He says, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. He said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that, you are, that they are Jews, and they're really not, but they're really just a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you're going to be tested. And for ten days, you will have tribulation. Let that one sink in for just a second. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for these um, just incredibly power-packed and personal words that you shared with the church at Smyrna. And God, that they are, are rich with meaning for our own lives still here today, almost 2,000 years later. God, I pray that these words would challenge us Father, that they would shape us into being a great church for your name. God, I pray for that promise about being conquerors. And more than anything, Father, that we would hear. Pray all of this in your name. Amen. Okay, so if you were here last week, I gave you a pattern for the letters. I said that there were four things that you could find in almost all the letters. The very first thing was some sort of accommodation, right? And then after that, you would find a complaint, a cause, and a cure. 
And so some of you were all excited about that. You took that template home and you went and looked at this letter and then you emailed me this week and said, Pastor Charles, I think there's a problem here because I can't find a complaint against this church. You're right. This is one of two times in the seven letters that Jesus did not have a complaint against the church. By the way, those are the two churches that are still in existence today. But he starts off with this commendation. Now in most of the churches, we see, in fact, five of the seven letters, we see a, a version of, I know your works or I know your deeds. And in this one, Jesus says this. He says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. In other words, he says to this church, I know your pain and your poverty. And I, I just want to point something out about the word tribulation here for just a second. He doesn't say tribulations. It's not this ebb and flow of going in and out of hard times. It is a singular tribulation that is ongoing. He says, I know the hardship that you are continually facing for my name. You see, most people think this, that this group of Jesus followers who were here in Smyrna had been completely shut out because everybody there was all about Caesar and Caesar had protected the city and continued to protect the city. In fact, from the time that Rome became in charge of Smyrna, Smyrna was never ever destroyed or conquered. And they attribute that straight to their worship of who Caesar was. And so if you didn't worship Caesar, then you couldn't work. You couldn't trade. You couldn't buy. And you couldn't sell. And the word for poverty here, there's two different words in the Greek for poverty. And the word here doesn't mean just barely scraping by. It means you don't have enough day to day. And so these people were there, they were suffering a huge amount. You know, it's re recorded that one of the early church fathers, his name was Polycarp. Polycarp is, is amazing because he was a disciple of John. The same guy who sat and recorded the words of Jesus, these letters, he sat underneath John and learned everything about Jesus from him. And he was appointed by John to be the overseer of Smyrna. And at 86 years of age, Polycarp was captured and he was taken in front of the Roman officials. Just before he walked in, 14 Christians were executed in the Roman games and eaten by lions. And the Roman official looked at Polycarp and he said, I'm going to give you a chance to live. He said, just burn a little bit of incense to Caesar. Polycarp refused. He said, just recant, repent from being a Jesus follower and turn towards Caesar and I'll save your life. And it's recorded that Polycarp said this. He said, for 86 years, I have followed 
and he hasn't done me any wrong. How could I blaspheme my king now? Now, blasphemy is the act of speaking something offensive about God. And on that day, Polycarp, at 86 years of age, after serving and loving his city, was martyred, was killed. And it may very well have been during the 10 days of tribulation that this passage is talking about, that was being foretold about what it was that was coming. But I, I think that those 10 days weren't a literal 10 days, 10 sun ups and sun downs that happened. I think that we were talking about 10 periods of time because Smyrna continually faced persecution. And I think that those 10 days represent 10 different dynasties of Roman emperors that were over that city and lorded over that city. In fact, in 1563, Fox's famous book of martyrs says that during the reign of these 10 emperors, almost 5 million Christians died. Five million Jesus followers were put to the death during this time. Let that sink in for just a moment. First of all, there were five million Christians during that time. Amen. But wow. What, what an incredible reign of terror that must have been to live during. But the tone and tenor of this letter is something so much different than the last letter that we looked at, right? Ephesus was this desirable church. Everybody wanted to be a part of it. It looked good on the outside. They were incredibly comfortable, right? They had all of the comforts that any church could need. But this church, Smyrna, was anything but comfortable. But Jesus seems to be saying to them, I am your comfort. Not that I'm going to end your pain and your suffering. You're going to have to endure it. But I am your comfort. In fact, he tells them, he says, be faithful, not fearful. Be faithful, not fearful, even in the face of death. I don't know about you, but I'd like to just scratch this part out of the letter, right? How, how is that supposed to be encouraging? Hey, you're about to die, but it's okay. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't really feel like charging hell with a water pistol. It doesn't seem like a fun idea to me, right? And that seems to be what Jesus is reminding them and telling them is, is that I'm here for you. I am the first, right? In other words, he's saying, I'm the one that created all things. I brought all things into being. Nothing existed without me. I'm in complete and total control of it. And then he says, as if that's not enough, I am the last. He says, after all of this stuff is gone, I'm still standing. And in case you missed it, I'm the same one who was already put to death and came back to life. Trust me. 
That's how he opens the letter to him. That is his comfort about everything that's going on here. And he says, I'm going to take it one step further. He says, I know that you guys are all about the crown here. And I'm going to tell you about the greatest crown you could ever get. The crown of life. He says, you have an opportunity that not everybody has. By the way, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the only way, the only way to get the crown of life is this, is to die as a martyr for Jesus. It's one of five different crowns that's mentioned in the New Testament. Now, to be clear about all of this, nobody can earn their way into heaven, right? Everybody gets there the same way, and that is through and by Jesus. You see, Jesus died on a cross. You say, well, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because Jesus dying on the cross was a punishment. But it wasn't a punishment for anything that Jesus had done wrong. Because God was very clear in his law. He said, here it is. For anybody who has an offense, who does something against me, we call that word sin. Anybody who sins, the punishment is death. And death is the moment that I'll pour out my wrath on all those things that have happened. And so Jesus said in dying on the cross that he was taking God's wrath. He was taking God's punishment for sin for us. So he died. And then, not only did he take the punishment, but I love this part, because three days later, he beat the punishment. Right? What's amazing about it is not that he just took the punishment for us, but he overcame the punishment for us, and that's what's amazing about the fact that he came back to life. Because through that, he offered to us the same gift of life, of eternal life, that without it, we had no access to. Because on our own, and by our own, we could not get it. So, with that being very clear, sometimes people come to this idea and they say, all right, Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. Great song. And they go, that's it. Can't lose it. Can't anything with it. And so I'm good. And they go through life living as if nothing else matters. But there's a catch. Everybody, everybody is going to be held accountable for their actions. You're saying, well, wait a second, Charles, hang on. You just told me that Jesus covers everything. He took care of my sin problem. And so if I have believed in him, if he is now the one that's in charge of my life, I'm good. And you're right, that's true, but, but, you're only saved from God's wrath at that moment. And there's a moment where every person will stand in front of Jesus and they're held accountable for the actions of their life. Some, some, because of those actions, are actually given a reward. In fact, the Bible talks about five different rewards. Five different crowns that you can possibly earn. Here's the first one. We just saw it, the crown of life. It's also talked about in James chapter 1, verse 12. 
And it's given to all of those who die as a martyr. Now to be clear, a martyr is a person who dies for their faith. Right? They die because of the persecution, because they believe who Jesus is, and they are following him with everything that they're doing. Now, I'm going to tell you real quick, we're not going to read those verses. You can snap a picture of them and go check them out later, right? But I'm going to give you all five of them and where you can find them at. The other thing you can do is, is that when we edit this afterwards, we'll put it up on the video and you'll be able to see it on our website as well. So both those ways, be sure to go back and check them out. You don't have to just take my word for it. I like for you to go look at whatever it is that I'm saying. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So here's the second one. The second one is called the crown of righteousness. It's found in 2 Timothy 4, 8. And this is given to all of those who make it to the day that Jesus comes back. I want this crown, right? Not because I want a crown, right? But just because I want to be there the day that Jesus comes back. Now, I have no idea when that's going to happen. Anybody who tells you that they know where it is, you should just turn and run the other way because the Bible very clearly tells us that no man knows the hour or the day that Jesus is coming back. Right? But those who do make it to that day get the crown of righteousness. Here's the next one. The crown of glory. The crown of glory. It's found in 1 Peter 5, 4. Now, in order to get this one, you have to be a pastor or a leader in the church. We'll be taking applications at the back at the very end if you want to be a pastor. Right? There you go. We'll, we'll help make sure that you can get a hold of this one. Um, no worries on that one, all right? No, it, but that's a high calling. And uh, Jesus said there's a reward for those who are willing to lead in his church um, because it comes with great responsibility. Here's the next one. The crown of rejoicing. This is probably my second favorite of all of the crowns, right? It's found in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, and it's for anybody who brings somebody else to come to know Jesus for the very first time. Now, most of these crowns are like a one-time event, but I like to think that this one is like one crown for every one person that you help to come to know who Jesus is. Now, to be clear, our, our ability to save somebody else is zero. Right? Jesus is the one who saves people. We just share about what Jesus did. But there is no greater joy, which is why I love the name of this one, the crown of rejoicing. There is no greater joy than seeing a friend or a family member or somebody that you love dearly come to know Jesus for the very first time and to understand what it is that he's done for them and to know that they're going to get to hang out with you in eternity forever. That's what eternity means, forever. And I hope my prayer is that all of us in this room would be have heaps of crowns of rejoicing because our friends and our families, we didn't go down without a fight, without sharing with them whatever chance we could about what it is that Jesus has done for them and praying for them and encouraging them and loving them and lifting them up, whatever we could possibly do to be a part of that process. Here's the final one. This is probably my favorite one, but it's the incorruptible crown. It's found in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. This set of verses has long been one of my favorite set of verses. Paul writes it. 
And he writes it about an athlete, actually a runner. And he says that, don't you know that all runners run in a race, but they run to get a prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. And I love that because some of you know that I was a runner. Actually, that's a, that's a little bit of a misnomer. I wasn't a runner. I was a hurdler. All right? And so these verses we would take, I would take, and I would write them on my shoes. Some of it was to maybe invoke that God would make me faster as I was running, all right? I'm not going to lie. I'm sure that was some of it. Some of it was maybe because I wanted other people to know that, that I, I served a risen king. But I would write these verses on there because I wanted to run in such a way as to win the prize. Now, my junior year of high school is when I um, became really good at the hurdles. Spent many long nights and hours at the track, not only training for speed, but I was working on flexibility and I was lifting weights and we were doing form drills and I would stay long after everybody else was gone in order to try to get better and better and better at the hurdles. I ran both races, the 110 high hurdles, which we don't know. So in high school, I jumped over something that was basically like this tabletop right here, about 39 inches high. In college, it was 42 inches high. If you watch the Olympics, they do 45 inches high. I've tried 45 once, it's tall. <laughs> and it was my junior year that really everything kind of came together. All of that work that I put in began to pay off. And as the year went on, not only did I get better, but I began to climb the ranks and began to be noticed as being better. Now, in high school, there were just three races that really mattered. There was conference, regionals, and state. Now, conference was against all the schools that you saw all the time. And it was really just for bragging rights. Didn't get you anywhere, didn't do anything, but you wanted to beat those guys that were from across the town, um, that you had friends out or whatever, because you wanted everybody to know that you were the best. But regionals is where it was at. You see, there were three different regions inside of my state. Each of those had about 20 to 22 schools that were at it, and every school could send three runners into every race. And then the top three finishers in those races would automatically qualify for state. So if you're doing the math, that's 12 people. But most of our tracks were seven lane tracks, and so they had two more that they could get in, and so it was the next two fastest times amongst all of the different regions that day would also qualify. They were what we call provisional qualifiers. So that particular day, as we had regionals, there were about five different heats, right? About 35 to 40 guys all vying to be the top three or four fastest times across the state so that they had a chance to go to state. So they had a chance to win state and to claim that they were the best in the entire state at whatever that event was. It was a good day for me that day. I wasn't projected to get to the finals. I was right there nipping at it and I barely made it in. There were seven lanes that you, could that you could get in. Lane four was the fastest. Lanes one and seven were the slowest. They were the last ones in. I was lane seven. Barely made it in. But I was in the finals, baby. 
I had a shot. I had a chance. I felt good that day. Legs were all warmed up. Nothing was tight. I remember that race for the finals. Got down in the blocks and got ready. Starter said, set. Everybody came up and the gun went off. And I got out good. It's one of the fastest times for the first hurdle that I ever had. And I was there in the front of the pack. And I was like, oh my goodness. One, two, three, press. And I went over the next hurdle. One, two, three, press. We got about halfway and I looked and I was in second place. I couldn't believe it. So I continued on. I was like, I just got to dig in. I know some of these guys are strong finishers that are still here, that are back behind me. And they're, they haven't had these great times all season long for no reason. They're still going to be coming. And so I, I began to lean in. One, two, three, press. One, two, three, press. And I made it over the last hurdle. And I began to dig for everything that I had. And as I got to the line, I leaned across. And I could look down the line and see everybody as I was crossing. And there was only one person in front of me. qualified for state. I was probably the happiest second place finisher you've ever had. <laughs> and because I was worried that it was a dream or something was going on, I ran up into the stands and found my dad to celebrate with him and to make sure that I wasn't wrong about what I thought because the official results were going to come out for a while. And my dad was so excited with me. He's like, you did it. He's like, all of that training, it all came together. It was amazing. He's like, you were so fast. I was like, I know it was great. We were pumped because I'd made state. I was going to be one of the 14 fastest in the state with a shot to maybe do something incredible. After that race, the coach tells you, hey, you got to go jog and do some stretches and all of these things that you're supposed to do that normally you don't do. But I was on cloud nine, so I, did, I think I did all of them, right? And I don't remember, like, feeling anything about them. And as I was... Preparing for my next race, I began to hear some buzz from some of my teammates about something. One of them came up and said, man, I'm so sorry. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. About that time, coach walked up and he said to me, he said, Charles, I don't want you to be worried about this as you go into your next race. But he said, you've been disqualified. He said, what? And the words that he said to me at that moment still ring in my ears today. He said, you've been disqualified for a blatant disregard for the seriousness of the competition. He said, you didn't get over enough hurdles. You knocked too many of them down. And those words still sting today. Blatant disregard for the seriousness of the competition. I was accused of not taking it serious. Jesus, I think, is saying to this church, don't get disqualified. Don't let anything disqualify you.
He's saying, it's serious business to be faithful to me. And it may cost you everything. Here's what I think this means for our church. I think Jesus is saying this. A great church has a great calling. A great church has a great calling. And that calling is not to be comfortable. That calling is not to be fearful. But it is to be faithful. So how do we live that out? What does that look like for us as a church? How do we live out being a great calling church? Jesus told a story about three servants. Each of them were given some talents from the master. Now, talents in this story were with some money. And the master went away on a trip. And two of the servants took and they began to work and infest and use those talents. And when the master came back, they had doubled what he had given them. And Jesus looked at the, these guys. I say Jesus because that's who we picture here. But the master looked at him and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. But the third servant did something very different. You see, he took the talent and he buried it. When the master came back, he dug it up and he gave it to him. And the master said, you're wicked. What have you done? And the servant said, well, I was fearful. I was fearful because I knew how hard you had worked for this and I didn't want to lose it or something to happen to it. And the master kicked him out. Now we all have lots of talents. I don't just mean money, right? This church that we're talking about here in Smyrna did not have lots of money. But they did have abilities, things that God had blessed them with, things that they could do well. And I think more than anything, Jesus was telling them that not only were they rich because of his comfort, not only were they rich because of the fruits of the spirit that they were giving, but they were rich because of all the things that he had blessed them with, their abilities, and they needed to use them and be faithful even unto death with those things. You know, when I was in children's ministry, I used to pray in a lot of people to come work in children's ministry. You have to pray people into children's ministry, all right? They don't just willingly come over there to children's ministry. So just so that you know, some of you are being prayed in by Caleb as we speak, all right, for children's ministry. Um, but I, as I would sit down and have a conversation with these individuals that would come to serve with me, I would tell them, hey, listen, I just want you to know that this is a TJC job. They say, TJC, what does that mean? I say, till Jesus comes. That's what TJC means, till Jesus comes. I was like, this is like marriage right now. This is till death do us part that you have just jumped on. Now, I was teasing with them, right? If they had been called somewhere else to go somewhere else, then they could. But I wanted them to know that if you were called to come and be a part of children's ministry, then until God called you to go somewhere else, that you were there. 
You were staying. You were locked in because that's what God called you to do. And a calling is not a feeling. It's not like, well, I feel like doing this today. A calling is my purpose and what I exist for. You know what I love about being a church plant? People ask me all the time, they say, hey, Charles, where do you guys need help at? The answer is everywhere. There's nowhere that we don't need help, right? But here's the difference. Because we need help everywhere, I get to look at you guys and say, well, where do you want to help? What are you passionate about? What do you love to do? What is God calling you to be a part of? Because that's where I want to unleash people at anyways. And because we need people everywhere doing everything, we have a unique opportunity. Here's what the OK Church does. The OK Church says, I'm just going to fill a need with somebody. That's what an okay church does. Here's what a great church does. They say, what is your calling? And let's plug you in there. Right? And here's what's great about a calling. Needs fall through the cracks. Right? Because when you need something, you're like, oh, you know, you forget about it. You're like, I need milk today. Right? I need to go to the store and get milk. Well, you forget about it until you open the refrigerator and you realize that there's no milk. You're like, oh, I still need that. Right? But if it's a calling, right? No longer is it me that's driving a conversation. It's you because you're like, this is what God's called me to do. Listen, we want to unleash people to do what God has called them to do, where he has uniquely gifted them and where he has uniquely talented them. One of my favorite prayer requests that came through just a couple of weeks ago was a lady who said, I'm just praying about where God is calling me to plug in at this church. Amen. We'll try it all. Right? And she's actually back helping out in preschool this morning. Which that's a calling, by the way. On your chair this morning, there was a serve card. Now on that serve card, there were some different places that you can serve. But there's also a spot that's blank. We left that spot that was blank intentionally because if you're like, you know what? None of these are what my calling is. God's calling me to something different. Fill that in. Because here's what we think a great church does. Great churches have people who are serving where they are called by God. I think that's what makes a great church, right? People who are called to do whatever it is, and they're willing to do that until the day that Jesus calls them back. What an incredible church that would be to be a part of. And that's the kind of church that I believe God is calling us to build right here. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this powerful, powerful word. God, to a, a church that endured so much. And God, I, I don't even know if we know the half of what that looks like or feels like to, to live that away to experience that kind of tribulation and to experience that, that kind of being shut off and cut off from the world around you. But God, how great it is that you are our hope and our comfort. Some of you, if you were honest, you'd say, you know what, I don't have a calling in my life. I've never had a calling in my life. And maybe it's because you've not answered Jesus' first calling. And he says, that's to follow him. 
We talked earlier about what that is and what that does, but I don't want you to walk away and not know about becoming a Jesus follower. So at the end, if you're here and you say, you know what, I've never answered Jesus calling to me to become a follower of him, come see me at the back of the room. And I'd love to talk to you more about that and what next steps that we should take together. Jesus, we just pray all of these things in your precious and holy name.